I would like to reflect for just a few moments tonight on a passage that we don't normally associate with Christmas, 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter 3, and I'll be looking at verses 8 through 13. This is God's holy, powerful, and inerrant word. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I remember when I was a kid... Christmas Eve was the longest night of the year. Didn't have anything to do with the winter solstice or how much daylight there was. It was all about that mysterious force that makes the minute hand and the hour hand of the clock move very slowly when you can't wait for something good to happen. I remember the anticipation would start slowly when my mom would put up the tree and the decorations after Thanksgiving. And that excitement was stoked all through the month of December, and by the time you got to Christmas Eve, the impatience literally became painful to the point where I couldn't sleep. It's amazing how slowly time moves between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. on Christmas morning. And of course, there was always that big post-Christmas emotional crash when it was all over and there wasn't anything more to look forward to the day after Christmas. I am very thankful that over the years, by God's grace, the reason for my excitement and my impatience on Christmas Eve has become a lot less selfish. Praise the Lord. Somewhere along the line, I began to be more excited about the gifts that I was going to give to other people than the gifts that I'd be receiving And that's a blessing. As our Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Although I have to admit that I sleep just fine on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning now, so obviously I'm not as excited to give as I was to receive as a child. We are wired to live in anticipation. We need to live by hope. We need it just like we need food and water. To be content, we need to have something to look forward to every day of our lives. You know that moment when you wake up and your brain's still kind of fuzzy and you're still trying to figure out what was your dream and what's reality and trying to get your senses about you as you sit on the edge of the bed 
And as you're trying to get your thoughts straight, you think to yourself, what do I have to do today? And isn't it true that the expectation of what's coming that day, whether it's pain or pleasure or boredom or excitement or conflict or peace, whatever you're expecting for the day will set your mood for the day. Well, let me ask you this. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ tonight, if you belong to him, you've given your life to him, and you're his disciple, what is it that makes your excitement about Christmas Eve different than the excitement that would be felt by your unbelieving, non-believing neighbor? Obviously, it's not the excitement of receiving gifts, because they certainly have a lot of that. It's not even the excitement of giving gifts. I know that they have that too. What is it that makes your excitement as you look forward to your Christmas celebration with your family and friends that makes your excitement different than a non-believer? It has to be the fact that what Christ did when he came the first time, when the eternal Son of God added a human nature to his divine nature and dwelt among us, and then died for us on the cross and paid the price for our sins, that what he did was he set the stage for his second coming. Because he has promised that he is coming again. And when he comes the second time, he is going to bring to completion the work of salvation that was established at the cross. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a famous British preacher about... A century ago, once said, I never begin my work in the morning without thinking that perhaps Jesus Christ might interrupt my work and begin his own. I am looking for him daily. That is the attitude of a disciple of Christ. That you have something to look forward to every day of your life because Jesus Christ is coming again. In this passage that I just read, it's all about the second coming. This promise that Jesus gave when he died for our sins, was raised from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He gave us this promise that he would return to take away sin, to take away all the effects of sin, and to make this world and the entire universe what it was always intended to be from the beginning. A world that is built around the glory of God and a people who reflect that glory in every thought, word, and deed. The Apostle Peter in this passage is seeking to encourage believers who had begun to lose hope in the second coming. You have to understand that in the first century, right after Jesus' ascension in the early church, Christians thought that Jesus was coming back right away. Maybe in five years, ten years, thirty years they thought they would, that he would come back in their lifetime, but then some of their fellow believers started dying, and it raised doubts about his promise. And so Peter is writing to encourage them, and to make it worse, there were false teachers that were making fun of them for their belief in the second coming of Christ. They were ridiculing the hope that they had. In verse 4 that I didn't read, it says earlier, these false teachers were saying, where is the promise of his coming? And so the believers were doubting. And Peter, it's interesting how Peter addresses that doubt. What he decides to do is to give them some eternal perspective. 
He said, you're thinking way too short term. He says, the Lord will seem to be slow about his promise if you're thinking in terms of your own lifespan. And the Bible drives the point home again and again and again that in the eyes of God, in, in, in the eyes of this eternal God that we serve, our lifespan is like the grass of the field. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It passes very, very quickly. So Peter says in verse 8, he says, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. You see, he's talking about our perception of the passage of time. He says some of us count his response to his promise to be slow because we're thinking in terms of our lifespan. I mean, you know that as you age, your concept of time changes. I remember when I was 10 years old, 10 years seemed like an eternity. When I was 20 years old, it still seemed like an eternity. Now it seems like a week because time seems to pass a lot faster as you have a bigger perspective on time. Think about the Lord's mission. When mankind sinned against his creator, God set about to save his people. And he put in place what we call the covenant of grace, a plan of redemption by which he would cover the sins of his people and reconcile his people to himself. And we don't know how long, but probably within a period of a few thousand years after man was created and after man sinned in the garden, within a few thousand years, God sent a worldwide judgment. And Peter makes reference to that a few verses earlier before what we read tonight. And he cleansed the earth of sinners and the effects of sin and saved one family, Noah and his family, as he cleansed the earth of its sin in this worldwide flood. And then a couple of thousand years later, God chose Abraham. And he gave Abraham these promises and said, I will be your God, you will be mine, and your descendants will be my people. And then a couple of thousand years after that, God sent his son, his eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to be the Redeemer. And now it's a couple of thousand years after that. And I think you begin, as you think about God's plan of redemption, you begin to see what Peter's saying is to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. This is his time frame from his eternal perspective. And everything is right on time. Peter's trying to say to us, he is coming again. I know 2,000 years sounds like a long time to us, but we need to look at it from God's perspective. The good news, Peter says, is that there's a very good reason why God has delayed in, in sending Christ for the second time to bring everything to completion. And Peter says that reason is that this gives an opportunity for the message of his life, death, and resurrection to spread to the four corners of the earth so that every sinner can hear what God has done to provide a way to be reconciled to him and to live forever with him. Peter says this delay in the second coming of Jesus Christ is to give sinners like you and me an opportunity to repent 
and to trust in this Redeemer. And so Peter says in verse 13, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we anticipate every day. That is our hope. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. And so how then should we live? He says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since this current earth This universe that's under the curse of sin is going to be dissolved and cleansed by fire this time. He says, how then should we live? He says two things. First of all, we should pursue holiness and godliness. We should be about the things of God. We should seek to be like Christ. We should stop living for the pleasures of sin and the pleasures of this fallen world and live for eternal good. Eternal treasure, storing up treasure in heaven. We need to repent, seek first the kingdom of God and its pleasures, which are eternal. The second thing, which is interesting that Peter says, he says we should be hastening the coming of the day of God. That's a very odd thing for Peter to say. Because Jesus himself said that the Father in heaven has set the time of his second coming. How can we make it come any sooner? Well, we can't from God's perspective. God has set that day. We don't know when it is. It may be very, very soon. But that day is set in God's eternal plan. But Peter's not talking, remember, about God's perspective here. He's talking about our perspective. We're the ones who are considering the slowness of his promise. And he's saying from our perspective, we can make that day seem to come sooner. And I know exactly what he's talking about. The second longest days that I've ever known, second to the Christmas Eves that I went through as a child, the second longest days were one particular summer job I had when I was home from college, and a company, a natural gas company, hired me to work, but it was one of these programs for college students, they probably got some tax benefit from it, and they didn't really want us or need us there, and so they didn't really have any work for me to do. And so I spent that whole summer either making work for myself or sitting there watching the minute hand on the clock go around very, very slowly. And if you've ever had a job like that, you know how slowly the days go when you've got no purpose, no mission, no work to accomplish. I think that's what Peter's talking about here. He's saying basically get busy. You're here for a purpose. God has called you to himself if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he has people that he wants you to serve. He has a a career, a calling that he wants you to glorify him with. He has a purpose and a mission for your life. You need to dig into your word and find out why you're here, what you're to be doing according to God's word, and then get busy doing it. And as you're busy pursuing what you were designed for and what you were saved for, you will find that the clock goes much more quickly and time flies when you're busy about kingdom business. So let me just close by asking you this. When you wake up the day after Christmas, what do you have to look forward to? What lies before you? What are you living for? What is your hope? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Pursue godliness and righteousness and hasten the day of his coming by working for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this celebration of the first coming of Christ. 
But as we celebrate it and we rejoice in what has been done and what has been accomplished and how you have reconciled us to yourself through your son, we are so thankful, Lord, that that has given us a hope. Because we not only celebrate the past, but we celebrate the future because Christ has made it certain for those who belong to him. We will be forgiven. We will be made perfect. We will be brought into a new heavens and a new earth. And Lord, we are to work now to bring that kingdom to bear on this fallen world, to bring the message of the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it. Father, help us to be about the business that you have called us to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.